I'd like to be to turn to two places here today. We're going to continue on the message that we started last week entitled, Removing the Controversy of the Charismatic Movement. Before we go to Acts chapter number 2, I'd like to draw your attention to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter number 4. And typically on a Sunday morning, of course, we've been preaching through uh, the book of John, and we've just started in recent weeks preaching through chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Acts. Typically, on a Sunday morning message, we tend to gravitate toward more evangelistic topics, talking about salvation and so forth. This particular study, the passage that we were at in Acts chapter number 2, while there are certainly some redeeming qualities, evangelistically speaking, in the passage, the passage is dealing with something that I think is quite obvious that it wouldn't be prudent to just skip over it or gloss over it. I think that it's important as God's people that we understand the Bible not in order to create controversy, but in order to remove controversy. As I said last week, there will always be controversy wherever you have people. You put people together, we all have opinions, we all have backgrounds, we all have different passions, we have different prejudices. That is human nature. And so because of that, eventually you put people together, you talk about something long enough, and you're going to have potentially a controversy. I don't believe that it is God's will that His people, the church, be filled with controversy. I heard a preacher years ago, a famous preacher, who made it clear, he said, we don't teach doctrine at our Bible college because doctrine divides. I submit to you here this morning that the actual opposite is the truth. Understanding the Bible, rightly dividing it, and being honest, sincere students of the Scripture doesn't divide, but rather it unites, because the Bible says what it means and means what it says. That doesn't mean that we don't have to study it, and that doesn't mean that you can't take ten good Christians reading the Bible, and each one of them come up with maybe just a little bit different take on what they're reading as they put it all together. None of us ever master the Bible. We are all to be lifelong students of the Scripture, ever learning, always putting line upon line and precept upon precept, always learning here a little and there a little so that we can become complete, so that we can become mature in the Christian faith. In Ephesians chapter number 4, it says in verse 11 that He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. These are various gifts and callings within the church, not only in gifts and callings, but also we can trace church history and find that there were different times in which one of these gifts or the other was the focal point. I believe today that we're living in a day and age where the pastor and teacher ministry is sadly overlooked because people want entertainment. People are addicted to charisma. 
And listen, there's nothing wrong with gifted speakers. There have been men who God has used throughout church history that were eloquent and gifted and powerful orators. But I would rather have someone in a plain brown wrapper tell me the truth than someone who is a gifted orator tell me something that's just not quite true. And much times the controversy comes when we are comparing Christian experience with Christian experience rather than just sticking to what the Scripture says. What are these pastors and teachers for? What are these gifted men for? Verse number 12 says, For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. I believe that every born-again believer should have a pastor. Now, here at Temple Baptist Church, I've said this before, it bears repeating. Here at Temple Baptist Church, I am the pastor. But that doesn't mean that I'm your pastor, because you have to personally make that choice. And I would say to you that if... The pastor of your church is not your pastor. You need to find the place where God has a pastor who can guide you and direct you. Someone who cares for you. Someone who is faithful to the Word of God. Someone who will tell you the truth and be a friend to you. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. A pastor is someone That is, God has put him in your life for your perfecting, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. People today want a preacher, but they don't want a pastor. A pastor has to get too involved in your personal life. And people don't like that. They like going to the church where they can just go in and sit in the theater and watch the show and leave, and nothing hardly is required of them and... They can show up if they want. If they want to go do something else on a Sunday, they can go do something else. And for the most part, nobody's going to miss them unless they're gone for an extended period of time. That's not the way that it's supposed to be, folks. And so the pastor is for your help. Notice now verse number 13 says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith. That's that elimination of controversy. That's unity. And unto the, it says, the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And I want to draw your attention to verse 14, and then we'll move over to Acts chapter number 2. That we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. You know what will help keep you from being blown about by every wind of doctrine, by every Christian fad? By You know, have you ever noticed that there's always a best-selling Christian book on the New York Times bestseller? And everybody's got a a different fad that is supposed to be the most meaningful thing. I remember when the prayer of Jabez was the big thing. I I like what one Bible-believing author wrote in response to that. He wrote a book entitled, I Just Want More Land. 
Now, if you know anything about the prayer of Jabez, they, you know, of course, they spiritualize it and use the prayer of Jabez to teach people that if you just say, God, I want you to bless me, that then God will bless you if you want it bad enough and so forth. And the reality of it is Jabez, when he said, Lord, enlarge my coast, he was just wanting more land. And so kind of a little bit of a sarcastic take on that thing. Then, of course, we remember when the purpose-driven life and the purpose-driven church and the purpose-driven marriage, the purpose-driven pet, and whatever else would sell a new series of books came onto the market and basically took a very basic fundamental principle, elaborated on it, everybody just kind of fell in love with it and started incorporating that mentality in their churches. And uh, I say to many churches, shame, they uh, departed from the Scripture. That old concept said that we should change our methods to accommodate the modern culture that we live in, but don't change your message. And so there are churches literally all across this country that are saying, we're not changing our message, we're just changing our methods. To which I say, after about 15, 20 years of the contemporary Christian church movement, how's that working for you, brother? It doesn't work. When we compromise our music, we're eventually going to compromise our dress. If we compromise our dress, we're going to eventually compromise our Scripture. We may not change it. We may not even... Now, normally, they end up start using other Bibles as well. Well, we want one that's easier to understand. And the whole thing is just like dominoes. Whether you start out with watering down the Bible, eventually you're going to water down your standards. But it's like dominoes, and they're just all going to fall eventually. The reason being is because at the heart of the matter is not just simply a desire to reach people, but at the heart of the matter is really an, um, a rejection of God-given authority. And I've got a book here on this pulpit, this King James Version of the Bible, that as far as I'm concerned, this Bible here is the final authority in all matters of faith and practice. This is superior to man's opinion. This is superior and should always trump tradition. And this book and its teaching should always trump our Christian experience. Throughout 2,000 years of church history, there have been groups of people such as the Moravians, good people in many respects. There was a branch off of them that went by the term the prophets. And while there was some good things in those movements and in those groups, probably the most harmful thing that they stood for is that they always judged the Bible in light of their experience rather than judge their experience in light of the Bible. Listen, you can have some supernatural experience and you can say, wow, that was just... That was just uncontrollable, and God did that. And it may be emotional, and it may make you feel a certain way. It may make you feel powerful. It may make you feel close to God. But if that experience does not line up with the clear teachings of the Bible, then that experience is not of God. Amen? Alright, wanted to make sure that you're with me. 
And so we've got a bunch of people that are tossed to and fro, and this is nothing new. And that's why a pastor, it's so essential that you have a pastor that is willing to teach and to preach the whole counsel of God and to tell it like it is. As we go back now to our text for our message today, Acts chapter number 2, we begin in verse number 1, and as we go down through here, I'll give you some brief, hopefully brief review before we finish out this message today in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 1. It says, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. We saw last week that the Holy Ghost shows up conditionally. John chapter number 3 says, the wind bloweth where it listeth. That word list means to, to want, where it desires. And I guess to, to make it clear, we would say when Jesus said, the wind bloweth where it listeth, what he's saying is that the wind blows where it wants to. And when it doesn't want to, it doesn't. We were downtown yesterday holding our signs, and it was a little bit warm yesterday. Not as bad as it is some days. But I was talking to somebody, and I thought, isn't it amazing how that in the summertime, as we're downtown holding the signs, and it's humid, and the sun's shining, in the summertime, all of the buildings seem to block all of the breeze. You know, you can be in sunshine, humidity, 85 degrees. If there's a little bit of a breeze blowing, it's not so bad. But if there's no air moving, moving that 85 degrees with 55% humidity, you're just standing there and you're sweating. And it's miserable. For somebody that grew up in a very arid climate, humidity is brutal. But when you're downtown in the summertime, the buildings all block the breeze. In the wintertime, when it's 35 degrees out, the buildings seem to just funnel the breeze. It just all gathers into one place and doesn't make sense. But that's the way it is. But the bottom line is we see and can experience the effects of the wind, but it's still invisible. We can't figure it out. Have you ever, have you ever had times when the wind's blowing from one direction and just Moments later, all of a sudden, it's blowing the direct opposite direction. Brother Harwell, when we're golfing, that happens sometimes, doesn't it? I mean, in the middle, while our ball is in the air, it changes directions and we end up in the water. You can't figure it out. But God shows up when He wants to and how He wants to. But there are conditions. The disciples obeyed the Lord when He said, I want you to tarry here in Jerusalem. And as they tarried, they were of one accord. There have been times when the disciples, good men, were not of one accord. There have been times when they were interested in their own glory. Times when they would say to the Lord, hey, which one of us is going to be the big shot in your kingdom? Of course, the Lord would put them back in their place and He would rebuke them. But at this time, they weren't thinking of themselves. They were just simply, as they should have been, of one accord and one mind, and they were just patiently, not passively, but patiently waiting for God to show up as He said He would. I believe that God wants to show up in our lives as well 
But I wonder how many of us have built buildings in our life that are blocking the breeze from blowing. I wonder how many of us that God is, the wind is blowing, but we have locked ourselves inside of our own little building so that we can't seem to access the wind. And He's right there and He wants us to experience a revival, awakening, whatever you want to call it. God wants to show up and work wonders in our life, but we just aren't willing to meet the conditions. We really don't want God to stir our pot or to change our life or to make us uncomfortable. In verse number 2, it says, Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. These cloven tongues that were as fire. This is not, as we saw last week, a baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire. If you've ever talked to someone who is part of the charismatic movement, they will ask you point blank, have you ever received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and fire? To which I answer, no, praise the Lord. Only part of that. Which part? Yes, I have received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. You say, really, that's interesting. Well, we saw from the Scripture, the Bible says clearly that our salvation is a spiritual baptism. It is not a second work of grace. The Holy Spirit is a person. And Romans chapter number 8 says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, and the Holy Ghost is the Spirit of Christ, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. You don't belong to God You have not been saved if you don't have the Spirit of Christ living inside of you. And so, yes, I have received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It happened when I got born again, when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as I repented, turned from my sins, and turned to God. But the baptism of fire is a very different thing. In Matthew 3, verse number 11, John says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Verse 12 says, Whose fan is in his hand, and he will truly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so the baptism of the Holy Ghost is what happens to those that get saved and are on their way to heaven. The baptism of fire is what awaits the person who refuses the baptism of the Holy Ghost, who refuses being born again, and they end up, God just takes and that that end, just blows all of the chaff, and uh, the people that are not saved, they end up going to that lake of fire, which is the baptism of fire. Uh, We don't want that, folks. I am glad that God has delivered me from that. If you're here this morning and you have never been born again, I want to encourage you, get born again so that you don't have to worry about going to a devil's hell. Verse number 4, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. 
and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. We saw last week that these other tongues are languages. The word for language in the Bible is tongue. And these were other languages, not gibberish that is some kind of unknown heavenly language that is not spoken here on this earth. We see that here in the text as you'll skip down to verse number 8. The men to whom these apostles are preaching, who the Spirit of God has come upon them and they begin to utter these other tongues. The men who hear them said in verse 8, How hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Then a whole list is set forth. Parthians and Medes and those of Mesopotamia and those of Egypt and Rome and so forth. These are all men who speak different languages. As the apostles went out, as the Spirit gave them utterance, they are each one speaking one of these languages to these Jewish proselytes that spoken other languages. This is clear. This is the Word of God. And remember, our whole message here is just focusing on the facts. You'll notice that I've been very limited in drawing conclusions that are outside of this text. There hasn't been a whole lot of rationalizing going on in this message. There's simply been a declaration No one can argue with this text and say that these other tongues were some language that is unknown to earth because the men that are hearing it are hearing it in their own language. And so that is a fact that needs to be understood. That's a fact that needs to be believed. And then as we have now found our place where we left off last week, I'd like to continue with number four. And that is that whenever these other tongues, these other languages are spoken in the Word of God, you trace this all through the book of Acts, you will always find that there are Jews present when these tongues are spoken. In 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse number 22, the Bible sets a principle for us to understand. It says, for the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Whenever God has dealt with His people, the Jew, He has always began that dealing with a sign. When God called Moses to be the leader of the nation of Israel, God gave Moses a sign. You'll remember there was a burning bush that was not consumed. If you'll recall, he told Moses to put your hand into your bosom. And when he drew it out, it was all leprous, white as snow. He put it back in and then removed it, and it was healed. If you'll recall, God told Moses to take his rod and to cast it to the ground, and it became a serpent. I'm glad that my call to preach did not involve that. I mean, God said, I want you to take take that stick and cast it to the ground and you know, and, and that if it became a serpent, I'd probably, if I had a gun, I'd be going, boom, 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 boom. God would say, now I have no preacher. <laughs> Moses was a good man. <laughs> Way better man than me. <laughs> Funny, all these little subtle things you can figure out. <laughs> but these were all signs that God, whenever God dealt 
with the Jew. It always started out with a sign or a miracle, but that is not God's emphasis to the Gentile church. God's emphasis, he says, the Greeks seek after wisdom. And so what has God given us? He has given us Bible teaching and understanding so that we can figure out all of the things that God is doing. You take the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles. What did God have Paul do? He had him spell out all of the church age doctrine that was very, not very, but in many ways different from what the apostles had been teaching and preaching under the gospel of the kingdom. Take your Bibles now and go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 14. 1 Corinthians chapter number 14. Let me repeat something that I said last week that bears repeating. This message is not an attack on any charismatic believer. I have known people who believe that in the apostolic gifts of tongues and signs and wonders, I have known Christians who believe that, that some are very precious godly people. And whenever I've been around them, as long as this controversy didn't become the focal point, I've been able to enjoy Christian fellowship. In fact, I'm able to leave that alone. But in few instances have I found that the charismatic believer is able to leave it alone. Uh, I don't talk about this all the time. When we are at it as we study and preach through the Word of God, if it's there, then I need to preach it. But I'm not all worked up and infatuated about one of these controversies because the Christian life should not be focused on all of the controversies. I wonder... I wonder how much damage that Satan has done in the world through Christian controversies. I wonder, only God knows, but I'm certain that there has been a lot of damage done among unsaved people as they watch saved people or people who say that they belong to God and belong to Christ as they just continually bite and devour and fuss over these things. Listen, when I come outside, when I walk down from this pulpit and I'm just fellowshipping with you, God didn't call me to fix everyone and to straighten everyone out. You ask me a question about Bible doctrine, I'll give you an honest answer. If I see that you're believing something or practice something that you're getting ready to walk off a cliff that's going to cause you or your family harm, I'm going to, I'm going to yell, I'm going to step in front of you, I'm going to try to warn you whether you want my advice or not. But I also know that there are some people that, hey, they're convinced in their mind and there's nothing that anyone is going to say that's going to change their mind at that point. You know what? I'm not God. My job is I'm going to stand before God and give an account for every single word that I've said from this pulpit and every other word for that matter. And that's why it's so vital and so important that we believe and study the Bible. We take it for what it says rather than take our feelings and our experiences and allow them to trump what the Scripture clearly says. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse number 21, it says, In the law it is written. 
Let me ask you a question. The law was written. That's the Old Testament, correct? The law was given to the Jew. That can be proven without any shadow of a doubt. In the law, it is written, With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, watch this, folks, tongues are for a sign. How about that? Comes right out and says it. Tongues are for a sign. The Jews require a sign, but the Greeks seek after wisdom. The sign, not for them that believe, but to them that believe not. In the context of verse 21 and verse 22, the unbelievers, who is that talking about? Is it talking about the Gentile world? Is it talking about the church? Or is it talking about the Jew? Plainly. The unbelievers of verse 22 are those to whom the law was written in verse 21. They are the unbelieving Jews, the ones that require a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not, but prophesying serveth not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. Of course, prophesying, that preaching and teaching of the Word of God, is what gives us Wisdom. So there's a contrast here. Jews are always present when tongues are spoken, and the reason for that, the Scripture declares plainly that the Jews require a sign. Now, go back to Acts chapter 9. Hold your place. We're going to come back to 1 Corinthians 14. But I want to show you something in Acts chapter number 2 that we didn't say much about last week that is worth mentioning. If you'll notice in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 16, Peter answers the accusation that people are saying that, oh, these are drunken, they're acting all crazy because they're drunk with new wine. And Peter answers that false accusation. And he says in verse 16, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy." If you want to see this in action, you can read the book of Acts and you can find that there were times when Jewish believers, where their daughters would be prophesying, you would find that when someone hears the gospel and is converted, that one of the things that sometimes, not every time, but sometimes they begin to utter these uh, other tongues, if you will. And you can see these signs and wonders. You can find an example when the Apostle Paul is bitten by a venomous serpent and he shakes it off in the fire and doesn't even swell up. Nothing happens. You find places when Peter's shadow passes by someone who was lame and all of a sudden they jump up and they start walking and leaping and boy, just a, a 
miraculous things would follow the apostles and the Jewish believers. But notice, as we read the rest of the story, in verse number 19, Peter, talking about Joel's prophecy, says, "...and I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord." Come, where do we find a description of this prophecy in the Bible? We find it prophetically in detail in the book of Revelation. These things, the blood and fire, vapor of smoke, the sun turned to darkness, this did not happen following these apostolic miracles in Acts chapter number 2. You find no example of it. In the Bible, until you get to the book of Revelation, which talks about something that's going to happen in the future. Listen, folks, I'm not a rocket scientist. I'm not a brain surgeon. I don't have a high IQ, but I'm smart enough to recognize that in this prophecy in which Joel gave and Peter gives the explanation as this beginning to happen, obviously something, something was suspended, and it's going to be returned in the book of Revelation. When we read the rest of the Bible and we see how that Paul's ministry, that God took the Apostle Paul, pulled him aside, and taught him some things that appeared to be very contradictory to what Peter and the Apostles were preaching and teaching. Obviously, in the book of Acts, something began to change. It was progressive in its revelation. In Acts chapter number 10, Peter preaches to a Gentile by the name of Cornelius. Cornelius receives that preaching and he believes. And the Bible says immediately the Holy Ghost came upon him. Peter didn't know what to do with that because Cornelius was a Gentile. Peter never understood until that moment, that time, that Gentiles were going to be saved the same as they were. He didn't understand that. It was progressive. And then Peter said, Ah, then remembered I the words of the Lord Jesus, how that John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. Peter understood it in Acts chapter number 11. And so obviously something, the entire fulfillment of Joel's prophecy was suspended. Now our text, Acts chapter number 2, has a gospel of the kingdom emphasis. You've got people that are saved later on. And let me just give you a sneak peek in Acts chapter number 2. I want you to look at verse number 38. Peter had preached to them in verse 37. They did something that I wish we'd see people do today. The Bible says in verse 37, they were pricked in their heart. When Peter preached, I would to God that some of the effects of the preaching of the Word of God of some great men of the past in church history, that some of those effects would return into our society where people would be affected by the preaching of the Word of God. We live in a day and age where people, you can tell them 
tell them the truth and they'll just kind of look at you like, and what's your point? I shared this story with some of the men last night and on street ministry in George Whitfield's day. George Whitfield had a great influence on the Negro slaves. He, he wasn't totally opposed to it, but he was very adamant in writing publications and preaching messages against any abuse of the Negroes. And because of that, many of them were converted and saved under his ministry. He was held in high regard among the African American community and they, they, he was one of their heroes. And so, uh, uh, Seward, um, William Seward told the story about how that there was a drinking club, a tavern that met and a bunch of these men from the area would gather together and they would drink and party and so forth. They had about an 11-year-old African-American young man that was serving them. And he was a, a young man that was very entertaining and could do all kinds of impersonations. And they'd always be asking him to impersonate someone. Well, one of them, as they started getting a little bit liquored up, one of them said to this young African-American boy, they said, Stand up on the table and give us a George Whitfield imitation. He didn't want to do it. He, he, he shied away from it. They continued to insist and press upon him until finally he gave in. He stepped up on the table and in the best George Whitfield voice and all of the inflection that he could muster up, he said, I speak the truth in Christ. I lie not, except ye be converted and repent, ye shall all receive damnation. The whole bar got deathly quiet. No one said a word until one by one they all just left. Seward said that that drinking club never, never convened again after that. I thought, wow. That is a power. That was not even the man of God preaching. That was somebody imitating the man of God. And it still brought conviction upon those drunks. Well, I'd like to see that again today, wouldn't you? To be able to get up before people and say, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And people start getting a burden. Sinners get a burden for their wicked condition and living their life without God and without hope and say, I know that I need to get born again. I wish to God that maybe in my lifetime I'll be able to see God work in such a manner. The apostles are emphasizing a gospel of the kingdom. Peter said in verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Hold your place and look at Mark chapter number 16. Mark chapter number 16. Once again, these are the facts surrounding the charismatic controversy. In Mark chapter number 16, we're going to see that while we don't chop up the Bible, I certainly don't promote a hyper-dispensational view of the Bible I believe that the entire Bible is written for us, but the entire Bible is not written to us. I'm not looking for 
a tree and a garden of knowledge of good and evil. I'm not looking to be saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. I'm not looking for a temple or a tabernacle where I have to bring one of my critters to have it sacrificed for my sins. I'm not looking for that. That's all in the Bible. And it's for me. I can learn from it. I can learn practical application. I can learn about God. It's all for my edifying, but it is not all doctrinally written to me. And Mark chapter number 16, we have another example of this. For Jesus says to these same men in verse 15, He said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This is, there is not just one simple gospel in the Bible. There are multiple gospels in the Bible. There's this one. There's the gospel of the grace of God that Paul taught us. There's the everlasting gospel that an angel is going to preach in the tribulation period and so forth. Verse number 16. Jesus says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. Watch verse 17 closely. And these signs, there's that word sign again, shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. All right, we're doing okay so far. All right. But buckle your seatbelt. Because verse 7, excuse me, verse 18 says, they shall take up serpents. Moses did that. We find an example of Paul as he was bitten by a serpent. There are examples of churches in the mountains of North Carolina that take this as doctrinally written to them, in which case, in almost every case, eventually those preachers end up dead from rattlesnake venom and so forth. Sounds to me like maybe something's changed. And we need to take the whole Bible into consideration. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. These are all things that we see demonstrated by the apostles. But we don't see anywhere as the time period we progress through the book of Acts... God raises up the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, and he starts teaching us church-age doctrine. And the only of these things that he even addresses is the speaking of tongues. And as we have already seen, he spells out to the church at Corinth that in most cases he's correcting their false interpretation and use of speaking in tongues. And so there are changes that take place from the beginning of Acts to the end of Acts. And wow, I am running short of time here this evening. Number five, as we go back to 1 Corinthians 14, I'll move very quickly through this. This is pretty self-explanatory. Number five, there are restrictions and priority on speaking in tongues. The church that had the controversy with tongues was characteristically a carnal, selfish 
an immature church. It's the only church in which the tongues issue becomes an issue. All the other churches, it's not even mentioned in Paul's writings or in the rest of the Scripture. But in Corinth, there's literally almost two full chapters that deal, three chapters that deal with this subject. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse number 18, Paul says, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than ye all. Why are charismatics always trying to ask you, usually the first question is, do you have the gift? Do you speak in tongues? Why is that an emphasis when Paul says, I'm glad that I do it more than you do it? And in verse 19, he says, yet in the church, I had rather speak five words with my understanding that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Folks, these are the facts, not the opinions. This is not an apologetic essay of drawing conclusions. It is simply declaring this is what the Word of God says. And the focus, the purpose is to remove the controversy from the controversy. Now skip down to verse number 26. Paul says, How is it then, brethren, when ye come together, every one of you hath a psalm, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation? Let all things be done unto edifying. I wonder how many of the lost community that is totally ignorant of the Word of God, I wonder what they're thinking if they were to hear you talking about speaking in some gibberish language. I wonder what they think if they were to hear you in demonstration. They don't even know what the Bible says. I don't think that that's going to be very beneficial to their understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse number 27, he goes on to say, If any man speak in an unknown tongue, let it be by two, or at the most by three, and that by course, and let one interpret. But if there be no interpreter, let them keep, let him keep silence in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. I haven't been in very many of those church services. I haven't been around that. I've only heard many people that are part of that movement talk to me about their church services. In which case, the description of their church services and the demonstration of this so-called spiritual gift, I've yet to find anyone that truly followed the pattern that Paul sets forth to the church at Corinth. He says in verse 29, let the prophet speak two or three and let the other judge. If anything be revealed to another that sitteth by, let the first hold his peace. For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. You know what verse 32 is saying? He's saying that any exercising of this spiritual gift is not uncontrollable. The spirit of the prophets is subject. You have control. 
And so when they say that it just came over me and I just started doing it, whether it's tongues or barking like a dog or having some fit, if it is uncontrollable, then the Spirit of God did not do that. Verse 33, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent, in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. How about that? <laughs> Hi, ladies. Now, I know this isn't saying that a lady can't testify or have a prayer request or teach a Sunday school class. The context here is women in a church gathering speaking in tongues. Now, once again, I haven't been in these church services, but I have heard testimonies from those who have, and more often than not, you have sister so-and-so and and sister so-and-so that are speaking in tongues and doing all kinds of things that are, um, are interesting, and it's not in accordance with the Word of God. Verse 37, if any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual... Let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. I don't care how passionate you are about your belief. I don't care how strong that feeling or experience is. God says, or Paul says, you need to know what I'm telling you is not my opinion. These are God's commandments. Verse 38, but if any man be ignorant, let him be ignorant. Wherefore, brethren, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with tongues, that all things be done decently and in order. My last point here this this morning is number six. Focusing on apostolic gifts is inferior and obsolete. It's a pretty bold statement, wouldn't you say? But in 1 Corinthians chapter number 12, if you'll back up with me just a few pages, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 all surround the signs and gifts, the spiritual gifts, specifically about the speaking in tongues. Verse number 30 says, Have all the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet show I unto you a more excellent way. What's the more excellent way? Chapter 13, Paul says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. I'm become just making noise. Skip down to chapter 13 and verse number 8. The Bible says, Charity never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. And we can argue until the Lord comes back on when exactly are these tongues, when did they cease, and what's that talking about? I've heard, uh, it seems like every couple years, I hear a new argument as to what that means. But if we could, just for a moment, set aside all the arguments and at least acknowledge the fact that the Word of God says that tongues are going to cease. 
And he's talking about prophecies and knowledge. He's talking about these spiritual manifestations. And one thing's for certain, Paul's saying all of these things, apostolic gifts and signs and prophecies and tongues, Paul says, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. Obviously, these are not high priority. Um, and in many cases, we can make the argument that they are obsolete because they have ceased. Verse number 11, Paul says, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Notice how that charity and the proper priority and understanding of these apostolic gifts are all relevant to our spiritual maturity. Corinth was not mature enough to handle their spiritual gifts. And so Paul had to spell out in detail, here's how you put them into practice. But they're not that important. If you'll recall, we read in 1 Corinthians 14, and in um, in verse number... Well, let me find it real quick here. 1 Corinthians 14, Paul said in verse number 19, In the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding than to speak literally 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Priority, precedence, importance. Why does the charismatic movement put so much priority on something that the Word of God says it's way down here on priority list and it may even have ceased and be obsolete. Well, I think that the reason is because of a lack of spiritual maturity. And I realize that to some, just this whole message, these last two weeks of message is like taking candy from a baby, taking someone's emotional experience away from their Christian life. That is not my desire at all. My desire is to be a good pastor and to teach you what the Word of God says so that you'll be solid and stable and not tossed about with every wind of doctrine so that you'll be mature and complete in the faith. In conclusion, I've got five words that I want to speak with understanding. Are you ready for them? Five words. Here it goes. Number one, Jesus died for your sins. I would rather speak those five words than to carry on for hour after hour in an unknown tongue where no one is edified. The last verse of our text in Acts chapter number 2 and verse number 21, Peter referring to Joel's prophecy said, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're here this morning and all this talk of tongues and controversy and speaking different languages and so forth, if you're not saved, none of that is going to matter until you acknowledge that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you receive Him into your heart by faith and call upon Him to save you. Then and only then can you become a born-again believer. Only then are the doctrines of the Word of God significant to you 
as God's children. Thank God that He gives us clarity to eliminate, to remove the controversies that the devil uses to distract us and to confuse us and to get us off track. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the Bible. I pray, Father, that the words that we have taught these last few weeks will be a help to your people. I pray, Father, that you'd help us to always focus on what the Bible says and uh, what it teaches and uh, not on our own experiences. At the same token, Lord, we do pray for a moving of the Spirit of God. Lord, we're not looking for a speaking in tongues. We're not looking for supernatural manifestations. But, Father, if the Spirit of God would just come in and warm our hearts and cause us to fear you, cause us to hate sin, cause us to love righteousness and holiness, to hate worldliness, God, that would certainly be a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit. there be anyone here today that doesn't know Christ as their personal Savior, I pray that they would rec- recognize that you died for their sins, that they call upon you to save them before it's eternally too late. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you grab a hymnal, turn to number 306 in your hymnal? Have thine own way, Lord, as we sing, the altar's open. If you'd like to come forward and pray, you're welcome to do so. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, we've got men and ladies that would be more than happy to pray with you, answer any questions that you might have. If you are not saved, why don't you just come on forward here, come down to an old-fashioned altar, tell the Lord that you know you're a sinner, that you know you need His Son to be your Savior. Receive Him in your heart by faith. He'll save you. He'll change your life. But you have to come. He doesn't force Himself on anyone. But He says, Come unto Me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Will you come as we sing? The altar is open.